want to set yourself up as an artist, you surely need at least one ambitious self-portrait to make a statement about artistic identity that is at once elite, intimate and material. The Dalziel brothers didn't go into this sort of thing. After all, they were printmakers, not painters. But looking on page 126 of Alicia Noyce's The Boys' Book of Industrial Information is an illustration captioned wood engraving. The book was illustrated with 365 engravings by the brothers Dalziel. That's okay, come in, sorry. illustrated by 365 engravings by the brothers Dalziel, who acted as both engraver and draftsman for the project. And this was the case for many of the humbler commercial books that Dalziel's worked on. For their more ambitious works, independent draftsmen were employed. What's conspicuous about this illustration on the left is the great care with which it is engraved, compared with all the other images in the book. This is apparent when viewing it alongside nearby images of pen-making, lithography and photography. In the latter, the backgrounds have been quickly engraved with few loose lines. The faces are generic, and in the case of the face in the camera, comically unreal. In contrast, in the face of wood engraving, uh, the face has the qualities of a portrait, representing an individual character. It's the only image in the book to, to do so. The entire image is more densely engraved than the other illustrations and uses a range of black and white line techniques to achieve different textures. Um, look at the comfortable floppy jacket, the soft peaks of the man's hair, the shiny engraver's globe, the matte lampshade, the decorative brass bracket and the varying light and shade on the wall. The feelings of narcissistic interest and professional pride that could have led the Dalziels to spend longer on this illustration can be readily imagined. But this investment of time and creativity is also striking, given that the Dalziels have always been characterised rightly as, quote, canny entrepreneurs, that's Luane Kuistra, chiefly remembered for their major role in making mass-produced fine art and developing the voracious markets for illustration that emerged in the Victorian period. Cutting on boxwood was laborious, and a fine, detailed image employing demanding techniques was a greater investment than the relatively open, sloppy and un uniform images that mostly populate the Boys' Book of Industrial Information. The decision to include a superior portrait in the middle of the book increased, increased production time without yielding extra revenue, um, very different from a high-quality frontispiece which could lift the whole book. And moreover, this mundane uh, children's book about industry would never attract the interest of the art world. It's a puzzle we'll return to. The Dalziel brothers were the dominant London wood engraving firm of the Victorian period. They're archived in the British Museum of around 54,000 prints published from 1839 to 1893, included everything from Dickens and Trollope illustrations to fitness manuals and chocolate advertisements. They produced many of the landmark images of the century, uh, including all the illustrations to Lewis Carroll's Alice books, as well as numerous pre-Raphaelite illustrations to the Mox and Tennyson. Mostly, they engraved illustrations after other artists, including household names such as John Tenniel, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, John Everett Millet, 
William Holden Hunt, James McNeil Whistler, and Frederick Layton. And it's these who have been widely credited as authors of what were fundamentally collaborative productions. A large firm, the Dalziels often managed all aspects of illustration on behalf of publishers such as Rutledge, commissioning and managing all the designs they engraved. Seeing this as a self-portrait of the Dalziel brothers raises more questions than it answers. Who is it? It isn't a convincing likeness of either of the brothers in charge, George or Edward Dalziel, nor of John or Thomas Dalziel, um, but the sibling whose likeness is particularly excluded from the portrait, also from the uh, firm's fraternal name, is Margaret Dalziel, a sister wood engraver who played a substantial role that's difficult to uncover. The firm's autobiography frustratingly dismisses her in three sentences as having, quote, constantly contributed to, quote, all operations for four decades. <laughs> But this wasn't just the family business. I'm curious about the many other engravers who were employed in the Dalziel factory, about whom almost nothing is known. One source about them is the final chapter of the Dalziel memoir, entitled Our Pupils. The chapter emphasises the educative role of the Dalziels. It seeks, I think, to rebrand what had once been a kind of unapologetically capitalist enterprise as a nostalgic workshop system. And in this rebranding, the Dalziels were probably influenced by the later arts and crafts moment in which they were writing. The chapter includes names like Francis Fricker and James Clark, who are described as having been, quote, pupils for half a century. And pupil had obviously become a euphemism for factory employee. The research I've been doing on the albums in the British Museum um, albums Dalziel produced as part of their working process, has recently started to provide evidence of some of the engravers they employed, with in some cases the names of specific engravers attached to prints and the number of hours they spent on the work. Names include uh, Eastop, Byfield, Hardy, Williams, Burnett, Royal, Manelli, Tilby, Copleston, Fenn, Gould, Coombe, White, and others. And you can't really see it on the slide, but um, it, this print I became convinced that it was definitely the names of the engravers. You can see there's a kind of Williams three hours, and for a few of them, the word hours is written out in full to indicate the amount of time. Um, yeah, you'll have to take my word for it that that's what it, what it says in pencil. Um, here you've got three engravers named Clark, who's the James Clark, the um, Dalziel's talk about in the autobiography, 46 hours, Morelli, six, and Tilby, eight. Um, another self-portrait, possibly, um, or a kind of um, fantastical self-portrait, might be this image of three sailors labouring together at a line, nicely illustrated of the three engravers involved, their name, you really can't see those names on the um, slide, but it does say, uh, and pencil under that image, uh, Tilby, um, Eastock, and Clark, who collaboratively worked at the lines of the prints, just as the sailors are collaboratively working at the rope. So when I think about Dalziel in this paper, it's a many-headed, a many-handed author. 
And I read um, this illustration as a self-portrait, a kind of emblematic self-portrait, so one of the, in the centre at the bottom, um, whose subject is unstable. It portrays a profession rather than a biographical individual, but does so with a gentleness of touch and an intensity of ambition, um, more likely to be associated with feelings towards the self or an intimate other. While the other illustrations in the boys' book of industrial information are clichés of capitalism, rushing stiffly and brutally over the faces and bodies of the depicted labourers, this kind of conformity is, as, is conspicuously absent in the Woody Breaker's portrait. It's notable that uh, the Dalziel's illustration provides extra information rather than elucidating the text. Um, and this is the paragraph of text uh, on Wooding Reading that the illustration was uh, printed next to. I've put it there in its entirety. I'm not going to read it all out. Um, they could have illustrated the text very clearly by, with diagrams showing the woodblock in different stages of preparation, both from above and in cross-section. And it's the, it's the preparation of the block uh, in very technical terms that is largely focused on in the text. Instead, the image adds new information. It shows the different gravers and tint tools used by the artist, the oil stone and ink dabber for proofing, the eyeglass, and the sandbag that keeps the block steady. It shows the lighting setup, in which light from a gas or oil lamp was intensified by being shone through an engraver's globe, a hollow glass globe filled with water. This setup was crucial for the detailed work of the wood engraver, light needed to be strong, focused, unidirectional, and constant. But the extra information that the image gives isn't really very easy to interpret. For viewers that had never entered the specialist world of the engraver's office, the globe must have been misleading, uh, maybe recalling a geographical globe, a long familiar symbol of knowledge, empire, culture, and refined labor. Ideas of enlightenment are reinforced by the glowing lamp that has a privileged position at the top of the truncated pyramid that formally structures the design. The paragraph of handwriting represents the engraver as nothing but a pair of hands. Filling a highly mechanised rock and cutting blank areas of the block in a strictly prescribed and measured way to the depth of about a twentieth of an inch. In the illustration, several items on the table tell a different story. A pen rests in an ink bottle. The recently used dabber reminds us of his role in proofing and correcting works. The numerous sheets of paper tell a story of artistic trial and error, whether in print, drawing or both. On the tops of the sheets of paper, just in front of the small oil stone, is an object that might be a spare woodblock or a book. Um, I think it's a book since its far edge isn't straight like woodblocks must be, um, but wavy to indicate covers and pages. All of these props go against the written text to present the engraver not as a mechanic, but an aesthetic artist who makes trials and judgments. The paragraph of writing emphasises an artistic industrial process, not a person. Most verbs in the written text are in passive voice. Um, the only face in the text is the perfectly smooth face of the woodblocks. Dalziel's illustration contradicts Boyce's text, presenting the human artist. Indeed, in the lengths they go to to portray the artist, Dalziel distorts their representation of engraving, and not just in choosing to present a lone white man. 
technically the image is all wrong. Um, on close examination, it's very clear in the original, um, we can just see the round handle of the graver clutched in the man's right hand and the figures of his left hand gripping the eyeglass. It doesn't leave him a free hand to hold the block steady. Boxwood is extremely hard, and having a sandbag isn't enough. Wood engraving manuals emphasised it was essential to hold the block. Manuals also noted the difficulty of magnifying glasses. The options were either to attach them physically to the eye, or to hold them, but you couldn't engrave at the same time as holding them. So this idea of sort of holding a graver engraving the block, holding the magnifying glass, not holding the block is completely impossible. <laughs> um, and then there's the eye shades that engravers often wore to protect their sight, and the nose shades they wore to protect the block from condensation from their breath. Such barriers deny the bodily closeness between artists and work. The breath, of course, is con connected conceptually and etymologically with inspiration, so these eye and breath barriers seem disciplinary reminders to the wood engraver that they are uninspired, non-visionary workers. Neglecting to show these things is a deliberate fictionalisation of the engraver by Dazil in order to portray him as an enlightened cultural producer. If this image is meant to have an audience beyond the boys who read the book, um, it's perhaps a club called the Crayon Club, whose existence I've recently found evidence of, um, who exchanged, um, 11 members exchanged literary-themed watercolours in 1855. Um, the members included four Dalziel brothers and also Alicia Noyce, who was the author of a boy's book of industrial information. This rare glimpse into Dalziel's social life suggests the illustration may have been made as a gesture of friendship. Here I am. Um, as much as it was a commercial educative book. I see echoes of this portrait a few years later in a cover illustration by Dazil after Walter Crane for a Gothic story collection by Wilkie Collins entitled After Dark. The collection has an intricate frame narrative depicted here. William Kirby, an itinerant portrait painter, is losing his sight and with it his ability to feed his family. He's an excellent storyteller, and his wife, Leah, has the idea that he could support his family as a writer. <coughs> to safeguard his sight, she becomes his amanuensis, and they do all their writing after dark, when her household duties are over. The third character is the painter's doctor, who supports the couple's project with encouragement, charity, and practical help, such as publishing contracts. As the portrait painter and his wife lean over the page, their position is not unlike that of the wood engraver. The lamp is common, but it does resemble an engraver's globe. With his eye shade that is meant to stave off blindness, um, I'm sorry about the quality of the image on the left, the artist reminds me of an illustration in the classic book on wood engraving, uh, Jackson and Chateau's Treatise on Wood Engraving, Historical and Practical from 1839. <coughs> the painter with his eye shade, sitting with the artwork between himself and the globe, is structurally reminiscent of the engraver. Only in this image, the collaborative aspect is introduced. While the painter does not touch the work, his hands held away, the doctor steps in as proxy. He gestures to the paper, and his thumb casts a most uncanny pointed shadow. As a shadow, it makes sense neither in its shape 
nor in its relation to the prominent light source. It looks like an erroneous line or a monstrous overgrown thumbnail that's not quite rightly positioned on the digit. To me, this triangular pointed line, you can't see it very clearly on, on the screen, really, really sharp, um, stands for the graving tool cutting into the wood, like a shadowed graver in the boy's hand in Jackson's book. It's an ostentatious moment of pure line that speaks to medium and maker. Walter Crane, though known as a painter and draftsman, had apprenticed with the wood engraver W.J. Linton. So here, Dalziel was working with a designer who knew the trade. There's good reason for seeing this weird line as deliberate. It's out of place in the realist schema of the composition. It can't be a simple mistake. Wood engravers work from black to white, so that while correcting a white line was quite complicated, taking out a small black line like that would be really easy. Once you've noticed it, it stands out. Um, the tiny page with the title draws our eye within the pictorial image because of the text on it and because of its bright whiteness uh, right in the centre of the composition. Um, if you draw lines from corner to corner, it's almost dead centre on the block. Um, who, in proofing this block, could fail to notice the little line? Um, and, yeah, sorry, this, this is an image of a different impression with, um, from Boston Museum of Fine Arts with whitened uh, corrections by Crane. And you can just see, for example, in the edge of the doctor's coat, that's one of his kind of uh, whitenings, but there are little moments where he's whitened various areas of the block. So he's clearly not interested in correcting this line. Um, I'll come back to After Dark, but first I want to continue the idea of the line by revisiting a foundational moment in art theory, uh, one of Pliny's anecdotes about the painter Apelles. Apelles visit, visits his rival, Protogenes. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. Protogenes was not at home, but a solitary old woman was keeping watch over a large panel placed on the easel. In answer to the questions of Apelles, she said that Protogenes was out and asked the name of the visitor. Here it is, said Apelles, and snatching up a brush, he drew a line of extreme delicacy across the board. On the return of Protogenes, the old woman told him what had happened. When he had considered the delicate precision of the line, he at once declared that his visitor had been Apelles, for no one else could have drawn anything so perfect. Then in another colour, he drew a second, still finer line upon the first and went away bidding her show it to Apelles if he came again, and add that he, this was the man he was seeking. It fell out as he expected. Apelles did return, and, ashamed to be beaten, drew a third line of another colour, cutting the first two down their length and leaving no room for any further refinement. In this anecdote, the line is identified with the name. Implicitly, the old woman, nameless and lineless herself, um, is expecting to receive a word, Apelles. But Apelles leaves a line in place of the name, and he doesn't even perceive this to be a substitution. Here it is, he says. The line is the name. In this, he is unlike Protogenes, the lesser artist. Protogenes needs to translate the delicate precision of the line into a declaration of the name Apelles. We could say that Protogenes is beaten not only because his line is duller than Apelles, 
but equally and indissociably because he fails to realise that a line, a name, a message and an artist are all the same thing. I think this identification is crucial for understanding the work and signature of Dalziel. It's worth noting that the translation of Linnea into line, uh, used in the 1896 translation um, here and standard today, um, was by no means straightforward for Victorians. The dominant uh, translation of Pliny in the mid-century was by Bostock and Riley. Perversely, their translation translates Linnea as outline rather than line. Um, Bostock includes a footnote explaining this choice and suggesting, quote, it is not unlikely that Linnea, or outline, drawn by each artist, was a profile of himself, and that the profile of Protogenes was drawn within that of Apelles, who on the second occasion drew a third profile between the other two. This refusal to see the line as anything other than figurative and outline um, is not unexpected in the century of realism, but it suggests an intellectual bias to composition over line um, that helps us understand why wood engravers were ignored in favour of designers in 19th century culture. On the other hand, the translator's whimsical suggestion that this outline was a profile of the artist, a self-portrait, is perhaps an unconsciously sympathetic reading of a passage in which a line is a self-portrait. So when I see this image of Dalziel as, as a self-portrait, it's not just the image of the wood engraver at work, but also the, the lines with which the kind of the white flecks in the hair are, um, are, are kind of cut out of the block. It seems like a portrait of the action of the engraver. Or the image on the right, the flecks taken out of the, um, out of the block, kind of speak of the labour of the wood engraver as much as as they speak of the labour of the forge workers, um, the extraneous line that comes out from the sun in After Dark there seems like a uh, kind of crying out as a symbol of wood engraving. Curiously, another word of Pliny's that the Victorian translators puzzled over was sequit, which was the verb used to describe the third and finest line drawn by Apelles and which literally means he cut. So it's interesting that in Pliny's foundation myth of art, the finest line, the one that surpassed all others, is not drawn or painted, but cut. We've had the cutting nail of the doctor in this image. We could equally, equally think about the lines of Jabberwocky, a block that reads area by area as a kind of showcase for all of the different available techniques of wood engraved lines. I don't have time to go through all those, but we could talk about it if you're interested. Um, so reading it as a kind of showcase of the engraving art, it's not hard to see those tapering talons of the Jabberwocky as uh, representing the set of multiple gravers lined up on the artist's table, deadly sharp tools that cut the finest of lines with a destructive precision, destroying the draftsman's work. The, the drawing on the surface of the block with the same strokes that by remaking it as a printable image completed. 
So I'm starting to think about the wood engraver as an artistic equivalent of the ghostwriter or amanuensis, whose story is not his or her own, but who is responsible for the entire texture and fabric of the text we read. So returning to After Dark, um, the frame narrative of this uh, story collection, in which the blind portraitist gets a new job as a writer, is recounted by um, the painter's wife, Leah. She also becomes his amanuensis. It's striking that in this narrative, the portraitist's patriarchal provider becomes through his disability involved in collaborative work. Uh, Leah Kirby um, sort of thinks about this. She says, an artist lies under this great disadvantage in case of accidents. His talents are of no service to him unless he can use his eyes and fingers. An author, on the other hand, can turn his talents to account just as well by means of other people's eyes and fingers as by means of his own. And the whole idea of the wood engraver as a kind of pair of, of hands, sometimes disembodied hands, uh, for hire, I'm not going to go into too much today, but it's, it's something that Ruskin was very, very concerned about in his lecture in, in wood engraving, and I think is really kind of at stake in this discussion of the amanuensis too, and, and of the wife as a kind of collaborative partner. Leia's feminine role as amanuensis is submissive. She's typical also of many 19th century um, artist households in which the husband does the lion's share of the creative work and the wife takes the lead in managing money and practicalities. Her interest in her husband's literary potential is a telling combination of culture and commerce, figuring out how he can turn his talents to account. But it's worth pausing to think about how Leia describes her own idea. When great men make wonderful discoveries, do they feel sensations like mine, I wonder? Was Sir Isaac Newton within an ace of skipping into the air? Did Friar Bacon long to dance when he lit the match? Um, she's describing her own achievement there. Her, her, she's describing her idea of making her husband a writer. She's not describing his literary genius. She's describing her kind of commercial genius. Um, and I don't know if we can see something of Dalziel and their commercial creativity in this. Although Leia is an amanuensis, she isn't circumscribed by William's writing. She's the narrator of the frame narrative outside William's fictional book. Um, even within the fictional book that she writes uh, for her husband, Leia doesn't consent to be a mere writing machine. At the end of the first short story, she inserts a note of her own that since he's blind, he can't see or effectively forbid. She tells uh, an anecdote that I, I won't quote, and then she kind of apologises for it. He says it's scarcely worthwhile to mention such a trifle in anything so important as a book. I cannot venture, after this, to do more than slip these lines in modestly at the end of the story. If the printer should notice my last few words, perhaps he may not mind the trouble of putting them into some out-of-the-way corner. It's a delightfully fake apology. <laughs> Leia's husband is the author, and on his authority, the trifle doesn't belong. Leia's tale is short, but her claim to slip it in modestly is, is wrong. Modesty would have excluded it. She talks of slipping these lines in, 
And in a book about writing and art, many of the short stories in this collection are about artists. Uh, the word lines is an interesting one, connecting the literary and the visual arts and acting as a building block for each. Lines are also a repetitive punishment and children in the 19th century were commonly given lines to write in detention. This punishment disciplines children, or at least some children, to do repetitive mechanical work, to work on a line. This punitive meaning of lines is important to so-called mechanical producers of them, um, like the amanuensis or indeed the wood engraver. Leah Kirby and Dalziel in some ways are given lines to repeat. These lines are what they do, what they hold themselves to, their discipline. For them, being given lines isn't exactly punitive. On the contrary, it can be a source of profit and pleasure. But it's at least plausible to see Leia's lines as punishment for being a wife, and to see the wood engravers who worked for Dalziel as being punished for lacking the social connections and financial backing to embark on more ambitious careers as painters or sculptors involving expensive training and a high risk of failure. And yet, this note uh, by Mrs. Kirby, delightfully addressed to the printer, who sets type on lines, of course, this note undermines the very possibility of an amanuensis. The text is William Kirby's, but Kirby's book always only ever contains what Leia Kirby puts in it, and anything extra she chooses to add. <coughs> the amanuensis was a figure who was condemned in Anthony Trollope's novel, Orly Farm, um, which appears in the same Dalziel album as uh, the illustration to Collins' After Dark, um, and was published with um, illustrations by Millet and Dalziel over 1861-62. The novel Orly Farm concerns a forgery and a trial. And the judge, in summing up at the end, declares that everything would have been fine if um, the landowner who wrote a particularly crucial will hadn't used his wife as an amanuensis. But it all would have been fine if he hadn't done that. Orly Fun features an engraver as a minor character. He's the lowest of the low among artists. Mary Snow was the daughter of an engraver. Not of an artist who received four or five thousand pounds for engraving the chef d'oeuvre of the modern painter, but of a man who executed flourishes on ornamental cards for tradespeople and insisted in the illustration of circus playbills. Reading between the lines, Snow is a wood engraver rather than a copper engraver. The terms were used loosely in the 19th century, and the Dalziels themselves, in census returns, were most often described simply as engraver. Snow is being contrasted with a socially and artistically more respectable engraver who receives four or five thousand pounds um, for making a huge upmarket copper plate which would have taken um, a long time to complete. Wood engraving was cheap, the bread and butter of image production. Intaglio methods were preferred for high quality art books and fine art. Um, and intaglio engravers could spend years on the print. Wood engravers were occasionally called on to copy paintings, but this happens surprisingly rarely. Sometimes happens for illustrated magazines. Based on records in the Dalziel archive of the number of hours uh, 
engravers spent on particular blocks, it seems very unlikely that even the largest and most detailed of their images would take more than a, a couple of hundred hours or so. Um, so with that in mind, four or five thousand pounds <coughs> would be absurd for that kind of work. Um, likewise, of course, since the engraver in Orley Farm meets another character through his work with the periodical press, and since he worked on surface playbills, he's certainly working on wood. Dalziel, uh, when they weren't making Trollope's books a material reality, executed, to echo Trollope's word, a, a rather deathly word that can mean material production without invention, numerous flourishes and humble work for tradesmen. Though I haven't found a circus handbill in Dalziel's archive, in the same year that they were engraving <coughs> Orley Farm, the Dalziel brothers illustrated a cheap souvenir book about the circus performer Blondin. When Trollope writes of the chef d'oeuvre of a modern painter, he may well be giving a complimentary nod to his illustrator, the Royal Academician Millet, whose hit painting The Huguenot was published as an Italian engraving approximately 75 by 50 centimetres in 57, almost a metre tall. But I, did it even occur to Trollope that he was insulting the very different work of his wood engravers? In Trollope's novel, the engraver Snow is a leech um, preying on Felix Graham, an idealistic lawyer. Graham adopts and plans to educate and marry the engraver's only child, Mary Snow. Um, Graham intends this marriage plan as an act of charity and social idealism, but it is turned by the, quote, cunning engraver into a financial transaction, and he insists on a marriage contract before handing over his child. Trade gets short shrift throughout Trollope's novel, in which money always settles back where it supposedly belongs. Trollope's, quote, begging, money-grabbing wood engraver is a caricature of the actual state of wood engraving, which was all about producing fast art for money. And I want to insert here a satirical illustration, um, which I propose as another kind of self-portrait of the Dalziel brothers on the right. An allegorical figure holds money bags aloft, um, her sash labelled dividend. She's boldly derivative, cashing in on pre-Raphaelite fashion, and strides through a ruined interior in which the wooden timbers of the building mingle with body parts. Here, as in many engravings, there's some play with the signature, which you can see at the bottom, which appears to be inscribed on one of the timbers the mythical woman is striding across. These timbers recall the engraver's woodblock, both a founding structure and one that is iconoclastically in pieces. Felix's plan, um, Felix Graham's plan in Orley Farm, for educating the engraver's daughter for his wife, quote, moulding her so that she might be made fit to suit his taste, is one of the ostensibly comic and unwittingly terrible parts of the novel. In the end, Felix wins, wins a more desirable girl instead, Madeline Stavely. Neither Ma Mary Snow nor her father are suitable. Snow pair had derogated even from the position in which Graham had first known him and had become but little better than drunken, drunken begging imposter. What's a father-in-law to have had? Logically, 
The wood engraver must be an imposter in the original and unusual sense of one who imposes on others. He begs, but he never deceives Felix or assumes a false character. And yet his daughter, Mary Snow, does turn out to be a kind of inauthentic woman. She's shown at every moment in a kind of pre-Jamesian way as sort of not the real thing. Felix reflects on his two potential brides. I thought I had this. Hang on, that's all right. Felix reflects on his two potential brides. Um, quote: The one that he had moulded for his own purposes was not, as he admitted, quite equal to her of whom nature, education, and birth had given the handling. In a culture that, for centuries, has metaphorically linked artistic and generative procreation. It's no accident that the daughter of the, wooden, of the imposter engraver is a fake. Pearsno is the most despicable character in Orley Farm, too low even to bother too much about. But as an imposter, he's important because the novel revolves around the story of another imposter, and indeed another Mary, Mary Mason. The central plot explores Mary Mason's forgery of the codicil of a will, allowing her son to inherit property. She gets away with this major fraud for more than two decades. The presence of the wood engraving imposter in the background structurally and thematically echoes the impostorship of Mary Mason. Everyone loves this Mary, but she too is a fake woman, much more successfully fake than Mary Snow. She is always, quote, plainly dressed, but in such a way as to subtly seduce and win support from powerful characters, since, quote, to her belonged the great art of hiding her artifice. Everyone is utterly shocked when they discover her fraud. The issue of guilt hangs around signatures on a codicil, and the novel becomes preoccupied with the idea of signing. By whose hand had these signatures been traced? Could it be possible that she, beautiful graceful, soft as she was, could have done it unaided by herself, could have sat down in the still hour of the night with that old man on one side and her baby in his cradle, and forged that will, signatures in all, in such a manner as to have carried her point for 20 years, so skillfully as to have baffled lawyers and jurymen. Mary Mason's guilt is attached to the act of signing someone else's name. What? Forged his name? exclaims her son. It must be a lie. Then he asks for clarification. What? All the names herself. Just as Mary Snow, the wood engraver's daughter, an undesirable bride, is contrasted with Madeline Stavely as a perfect match, so Mary Mason's fake signatures are contrasted to the true signature of Madeline, a signature that's true because it's unwritten. And there's a kind of really interesting fantasy of presence here that anticipates Derrida's signature event context, I think. Uh, this is Madeline's uh, response to Felix's, Philip Graham's marriage proposal. Very slowly she raised her little hand and allowed her soft, slight fingers to rest upon his open palm. It was as though she thus affixed her legal signature and seal to the deed of the gift. Throughout the novel Orley Farm, forging signatures is a specifically nighttime work. Mary is this midnight forger, a perpetrator of midnight forgery. 
She wrote it herself in the night, executed it with midnight care. There are many echoes here in the work of the wood engraver, for whom publication deadlines required nighttime labour. Dalziel's memoir is just one source for this, commenting on how, quote, a large amount of wood engraving being done on the rush, it was a common thing to burn the midnight oil and the engraver's eyes at the same time. In 1884, after both Trollope and Dickens had died, Dalziel produced both their signatures commercially, for example, for these adverts for Brandauer and Co's fountain pens. When engravers produced the lines of someone else's signature, uh, a common fashion in 19th century print culture, of course it isn't a crime, even though they're exploiting the signature for money. But I think that the status of um, the wood engraver in Victorian culture does have to do with their relationship to the signature. The way wood engravers use signatures goes against a mainstream visual culture considerably interested in the following. In myths of the authority of singular rather than collaborative artistic producers, in a belief in the importance of names and identifiable personalities in art, in autographic expression, and in the 19th century prioritisation of composition over formal or material aspects of work. If the signature is the ultimate self-portrait in Western culture, one that makes aesthetic and legal claims, the wood engraver's signature is always a self-portrait of the other, and this extends to all their working practice. Um, the signature Dalziel was a flourish immediately identifiable on their blocks. Um, it was the only bit of the block in which the engraver is freed from the designer's composition. So here's the famous looking glass image of the Tenniel. Everything in the looking glass world is reserved, reversed. Not only Alice and the furniture, but even Tenniel's monogram is actually printed really lightly in the proofs. Um, but you can see the monogram very clearly in the published version and how it's reversed. Um, mirrored and flipped to the opposite side of the block. Um, this might have been a private joke because um, it's very common to see blocks in which um, designers' signatures were reversed accidentally. And there's one example on the left there. Um, Dalziel follows the um, follows this kind of reversing spirit to some degree, and the position of the engraver's signature um, is flipped in the book. I don't know if you can see Dalziel um, towards the outside of each of those images at the bottom on the kind of fireplace. Um, but the letters of Dalziel aren't mirrored as Tenniel's are. Um, it's an interesting refusal to enter into the spirit of the block, and whether that refusal is oversight or disinclination. Dalziel's hand is of course everywhere in both blocks, and the quality of, of lines that makes the kind of looking glass world kind of bold and full of contrast, whereas the kind of lines in the everyday world are much fainter and more delicate, it is, is of course um, authored by, by the wood engraver, but only in the signature do they have compositional freedom. Having said this, um, I don't know if you can see before we move on from that image that the uh, signature Dalziel is quite different in each block, which possibly indicates a different wood engraver. 
Um, it's, it's maybe something that you need to look at the frame with a magnifying glass to see well, I don't know. Um, the autographic seeming signature, Dalziel, doesn't refer to a person in the way Tenniel's monogram does. Dalziel might be one of countless men and women, um, from the heads of this successful family, who have houses in Hampstead by this time, to a poorly paid perpetual apprentice, or a freelancer from a rival wood engraving company, family. Some of the names of engravers that appear in the Dalziel albums can be linked to biographical individuals. Byfield, for example, was a family of engravers based in Islington, working throughout the 19th century. One of them engraved um, a design of wood after Blake in 1821. By the 1870s, uh, when Byfield's name frequently appears in Dalziel's albums in pencil, the older generation had died, and Dalziel's uh, employee was probably um, one or all of Mary, Anne, or Lewis Byfield. It was probably Mary or Anne. Um, most of the engravers' names just, just give the surname, but there is one uh, example in a different hand where someone's written Miss Byfield. Um, so Byfield engraved many images in the name of Dalziel, like these wonderful uh, dragons from the 1880s. Unfortunately, in the 1860s, there's no comparable evidence of engravers in the albums, but Dalziel produced more in that decade than any other, and they must have had lots of employees. It's perfectly possible that this wood engraving of the mis-signing Mary Mason um, was produced by yet another Mary, either the Mary Byfield just mentioned, or her aunt, another Mary Byfield, who was alive and working in the 60s. It's worth noting that Dalziel's signature um, did change. Um, sometimes the letters are spidery, sometimes loopy, sometimes blocky. And I'm hoping that some of the differences in the way that uh, the signature is engraved might turn out to be uh, helpful in attributing individual wood engravers. Um, the Dalziel archive also includes a rare, uh, that's a kind of another wonderful self-portrait if we're thinking of Dalziel as commercial artists. I don't know if you can see there on the left um, the uh, signature Dalziel on what's clearly an uh, accounts book. Um, and, and, and that signature is, is a couple of millimetres high, and, and it's thanks to the amazing photographs um, that self editions have taken to the archive that you can take um, that kind of level of detail from a whole page of, of the book and kind of manage to read that. So there's a rare um, example of a correction to the signature in a proof here. Um, I don't know if you can see at the bottom left, uh, James Godwin, the designer, signed his name and then um, whitened it out. I should have got a pointer and I haven't. Can you see on the bottom left corner where there's a signature whitened out? And then in pencil underneath it, he's written, take out the name, please, with multiple exclamation marks. Um, and if you read what he's written on the block, he's obviously very, very unhappy. Um, with the engraving, um, if you can read it, I, um, what have I done that you should, um, 
What, what have I done that you should bring my youth, the results of the, my youthful sins back to me? It's been, it's been trimmed, I believe, so you can't find um, In Godwin, and that's a pun on his name, in, for Godwin's sake, revise it carefully. Um, and then removing his, his signature. Um, there's another... I can skip over that. There's another issue. There's a, some more examples of, of corrections that have been made to the blocks here, which, which are quite interesting. And you know, we think about wood engravers in following lines, but um, uh, following a line was, was clearly a matter of interpretation. And for example, um, the detail of this page is the, the note is window, not books. <laughs> where they obviously read a um, what was supposed to be a straight line indicating the top of a window as a wavy line indicating the tops of books um, and made it look completely different and sort of um, copying lines is, is, a, is an interpretive act. Um, another one here where the engraver um, the drawing has clearly been destroyed and uh, the designer notes, I don't remember this in the drawing, um, is it a tree or rock, is it rocks or a tree growing out of the sea? <laughs> um, Rossetti was uh, famously horrified with, with the work uh, Dalziel did. And I just wanted to point out that it's interesting that, that his horror does revolve around their signature. Um, and, and this is a letter in which he kind of like really rants about Dalziel. And if you look about 60% of the way down the letter on the left hand side, he imitates Dalziel's signature um, and, and, and the kind of describes this signature as performing a cannibal jig <laughs> in the corner of his image. And so it's, it's not just Dalziel, it's also the signature that is in some way responsible um, for everything that goes wrong. Um, and the little lines that he's done from the letters that kind of... Do you see how they're kind of... The, there are lines bleeding out from the letters uh, on the beginning and end of the name. And that's very um, characteristic of how Dalziel's name kind of merged with the lines of the wood engraving. Um, and I don't want to go on for too long... But yeah, there was clearly a kind of unhappiness with the, with the idea of um, independent, with the idea of wood engravers kind of being an independent and separate author. And this is this is an annotated proof, uh, uh, which was annotated by Millet, who's the designer of this print. And he's obviously uh, worked has a much more successful collaboration with Dalziel, but. He says here, the, right at the bottom, these three lines, I'm working at parables at this moment. Um, could you not find a day to touch this one um, under my superintendence? It would be better. Um, yours, J-E-M. And, and I don't know if you, if you would agree with this, but the dear D at the top of that and the yours, J-E-M, at the bottom really looked to me like they'd been added as afterthoughts, as if he kind of wrote these three lines and then thought, oh, I better be polite about this. <laughs> and there's no indication that, that wood engravers ever worked strictly under the superintendence of, um, of designers in, in the way they would have done in a kind of early modern um, um, printing workshop with the kind of um, the, the designer in charge. So um, I, I think there's obviously some kind of 
unhappiness with, with the designer as author here. Um, and yeah, I know what I've been going on quite a long time, but I'm going to leave it at that. Oh, thank you.